three, two, one. Thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week we're going to be doing an update to the situation in Ukraine. Our guest is going to be Mr. Jonathan Gay, who's been on the show a couple times before. Glad to have him back. He's an attorney, an Army veteran, and I look forward to the discussion we're going to have today about the ever-evolving and rapidly changing situation in Ukraine. So yeah, a lot of stuff going on in Ukraine in the past couple weeks. I mean, since we did our last uh, our last show, or last update, I mean, there's been just tons of stuff that have changed. And where to start? I mean, I don't know where. Where would you like to start? I mean, there's so many places you could yeah. start. You know, the, I, I think the the obvious place to start might be the uh, just today we saw a, a bombing of a train station, a missile strike. In the the U.S. has has um, indicated that it was a precision missile strike on a train station at a small town outside of Kiev. Uh, maybe a little farther than that, maybe a little farther east, but um, over 50 people were killed, oh, nearly 100 were injured, a handful of children, and one of the more chilling aspects of it, not only was the precision strike, but the missile, apparently there are reports and photographs that the, the, the missile itself had been painted with the words for the children. So some speculation, and again, it's, it's early reports, but some speculation that that may be a, a reference to the, um, there, there was in Mariupol a theater that was bombed, and the theater had the words children written on the, um, on the theater, and so the, uh, the question becomes, was that, was that an intentional, um, uh, obviously, you, you spray paint something like that. So you you know what you what you're what you're saying. So pretty pretty gruesome though. Reporting that's coming out of Ukraine today. Kramatorsk uh, was the location of the train station that was that was hit. That's and farther in the east. Um, and it, okay. And it, based on what I could tell, it looked like it was a, a point of departure for civilians that were trying to evacuate uh, the area. So. Um, if you're if you're trying to scare people into not evacuating, I guess an effective way to do it would be to target these uh, transportation systems that they're using for evacuation. Um, and that's speculation on my part. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what it looks like, um, just from a distance. You know, from eight thousand miles away for, uh, through a straw, as we like to say, um, because it is. Uh, but it, it's sure hard to swallow that as a coincidence. <laughs> um, that that that's something that gets yeah. hit in the midst of, a, of an ongoing evacuation. Um, but you know. That the, the one of the themes I was thinking of when I, I thought about how which, which how we wanted to approach this uh, update today was you know and I mentioned yesterday like how do we explain the resistance that Ukraine has managed to put up and and it seems like things like that whether it was an intentional targeting of a of a uh, evacuation point or not it seems like it just reinforces uh, the national will to fight so rather than than people getting demoralized it seems to have just the opposite effect. On folks in Ukraine, and it just seems to strengthen their resolve. Would you would you agree with that? Based on what you've seen, totally agree with that. There, there seems to be a deliberate campaign to terrorize the um, Ukrainian population and and delegitimize them. And I think that 
that deliberateness has in turn sparked a very deliberate counter movement of, you know, we are going to be relevant. We, we are going to stand and, and fight. You know, one of the fascinating things to me is that the East, which was assumed to be very pro-Russian, has in fact, you know, report after report of pro-Russian communities, pro-Russian officials, um, people who, who speak Russian as their primary language, uh, resisting in Kyrgyzstan and in Mariupol and different places resisting the um, the Russian invasion. So it's just fascinating to see the uh, the uh, resistance. Yeah, I, I noticed that in, in Odessa as well. There was a, where there's a very large, you know, ethnic Russian and Russian speaking population that made similar statements that we're speaking Ukrainian now. Uh, so it's it's uh, amazing how that can bombs falling on your doorstep will have a, a, an impact on your attitude rather quickly. Yeah, you know, someone said that, that Putin's goal allegedly was to protect the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine, and in fact, he's he's harmed and, and killed more of them than was ever contemplated by Ukrainian nationalists. Yeah, and, and the, uh, the Kremlin spokesman Peskov himself has acknowledged that their own casualties are much higher than they initially had claimed. So it sounds like they're coming more in line with what we were, what reports we were getting from either independent sources, the Ukrainians themselves, or uh, independent media sources who are on the ground and have eyewitnesses there. You know, I, I know it's a very difficult task to actually put a number on something like this when, when there's still a lot of chaos and, and confusion on the ground. But at the same time, you can make a, a reasonably intelligent estimate based on what you do find uh, across the country and sort of put it together to form a picture. Um, and so I don't know what the, the correct number is for fatalities for either Russian forces or Ukraine, but I, I think it's clear that the Russian fatalities are much higher than they initially uh, initially let on, and they're admitting that themselves now, which is itself pretty extraordinary that they're make, making that admission. Yeah, you know, and I saw, I believe the reports are that up, up to 20,000 deaths, and the uh, there's been some really fascinating analysis that, you know, if you have... If you have 20,000 deaths, that means X number of other casualties of people who are who are injured or who are missing. And there are some estimates that we're looking at upwards of 50,000 Russian soldiers um, either dead, missing, or severely wounded. And, it's, and I think it's fair to say that the, the, the Ukrainian casualties probably are pretty high, too, uh, at least in terms of uh, you have to include both military and civilian so I, I don't think it would be wrong to say that they're probably experiencing a, a similar level of damage. Um, of course, in combat terms, you know, with with civil support being one of the big components of this Ukrainian resistance, they have the ability to replace folks a lot faster uh, than Russian forces do. They've got to come all the way from either the north in Belgorod or the far east near Donbass or down south in Crimea, which they haven't been able to make much headway. But whereas the Ukraine's already there. So it's it's a little bit easier for them to replenish losses, uh, at least in the immediate fighting zones that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I haven't seen any reports that Ukraine is looking at any kind of manpower shortage. I've, I've been curious. I haven't seen much reporting on that, though, at all. And it's understandable that their government and their military, just like the Russian forces, would want to keep that uh, as you know close to the chest as they can for obvious security reasons. So I don't know. I think the truth is nobody probably, not even the Russians or the Ukrainians, really know for sure 
exactly what the number is right now. I don't, I don't think that's possible, but I do think it's a lot higher than initially was thought. And so, you know, that, that would seem to, to suggest that the Ukraine has had the degree of success that they've claimed uh, in, in terms of uh, stymieing the invasion, halting the progress, or pushing it back in other places. Uh, when you have a casualty count that high, um, I think that tells you that Ukraine has been, been more successful than we initially thought they would be. Yeah, you know, the uh, you see very few independent media sources claiming that the, um, that the I haven't seen any that, that truly that have claimed that the Russians are successful, that the Russians are not experiencing a lot of casualties. You see, obviously, some Kremlin-associated outlets, and, and I also seen Scott Ritter and a couple of other folks that, that again, are affiliated with Russian media that have made claims that, you know, well, well the, the attack on Kiev was a feint, and, you know, the casualty numbers are being overblown, but I'm not seeing any, any credible media outlets report that kind of thing. And I think it's interesting to, to listen to the statements coming from the Russian government itself, and this, this uh, dovetails nicely with a, a thread that was on Twitter not long ago about how having failed to achieve the initial goal of, of capturing Kiev, now whatever we accomplish will become the new goal. So we're just, we're just going to do that little bait and switch on you and say, okay, well, we never really wanted to capture Kiev anyway. It was all about the eastern region, and, and that's what it sounds like we're hearing from, from the Russian state government and their officials, that, well, we, we didn't really want to take the whole country. We just wanted to capture the eastern region, and the rest of it was all just to degrade and destroy Ukraine's uh, combat power. So we're just switching around in there, and uh, I guess that's the, the way they're going to go. Yeah. You know, I saw something uh, not too long ago, and it said that um, for, for Putin, a bad war is infinitely preferable to a bad peace. And I think that's sort of where he's at right now. I think that his goal is to continue this war and to keep hoping that he can salvage something from it, you know, with the, the, the whole maximum pressure concept. And in the meanwhile... Um, it benefits him to not cut a bad deal for Russia. And I also have seen reports that the, the people that Putin fears the most are not those on the left, but those to his right. Those people who have argued that Putin is not successfully prosecuting the war vigorously enough. You know, there, there's, um, just to get a ground level perspective, there's a lot of American expats who are there now actually on the ground uh, involved in one way or another with either the Ukrainian Foreign Legion or they're there as volunteers. And the, many of those folks have been fairly vocal uh, about uh, describing what they've seen and heard. And so I've heard and seen some interesting comments from them in terms of how the how things are playing out actually on the ground, either in Kiev or uh, in other places. That's where most of the volunteers seem to be headed uh, in that general area. And I think some of the things that they encountered are things I've, I've encountered before when dealing with foreign militaries. It's We have this expectation in the United States and with our European allies that there's this very rigid sort of rank structure, right? Like we salute the higher rank and there's a very, there's a very clear, crystal clear cut uh, pecking order in the hierarchy of how the military works. And some folks who are, who are part of that system now are surprised that in Ukraine, you know, rank doesn't really mean that much. Um, from day to day, you know, okay, there's a colonel, there's a, there's a private, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it, it just depends on what they're doing that day. So as one put it, you know, rank is, seems to be just a matter of who gets what paycheck, not, not who does what 
uh, in terms of operations. So there's sort of two ways to interpret that. One is that there's there's a little bit more confusion and less coordination than we thought, uh, and that's possible. The other the other uh, interpretation is they're just not trusting the foreigners enough yet to really let them know how things are done uh, or to really let them in on what the master plan is. And I certainly can understand that. I mean, why would you just give away your because because there's almost certainly going to be infiltrators in those foreign fighters that want to pass intelligence on to Russia. Um, so I, I don't blame them for, for not uh, sharing everything with the foreign fighters that come in. That would that would make sense to me from an OPSEC point of view. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've seen very little reporting on the overall Russian, I'm sorry, the overall Ukrainian military as far as um, from, from a unit perspective. You see a lot of, of you, you see a lot of instances reported where, you know, destroy this tank, destroy that piece of artillery uh you see a lot of those images but you don't see anything that gives you a real clear view of how the ukrainians are fighting and that's something i'm looking forward to in the uh, in the history of this conflict is to understand you know how exactly did they do it because you're right if, if you watch the news only it's easy to get the impression that this is these are all just a, a bunch of ukrainians you know, in Kiev and in Mariupol and wherever, who are fighting on their own. We're getting them weapons, but once they get the weapons, they're going out and doing their own thing. And so you wonder what, to what level they're reporting to Zelensky, to what level they're coordinating, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, just trying to piece it all together, my assessment has been that there's really sort of three things that have come together to help Ukraine mount a, a pretty effective resistance so far. The first one is national solidarity. You know, without that, you're, you you got nothing. And they seem to have a pretty strong uh, degree of that. You know, you've got folks who, you got blacksmiths who now are out there making tank traps. you got brewers that are now out there making Molotov cocktails. you got you just ordinary citizens that if whatever they were going to do, they just stopped and picked up a weapon. They didn't ask about what the cost would be. They didn't worry about where their business would be three weeks from now or what it would cost their economy. They just said, okay, everything else has to stop and the fight is the top priority. So that's number one. You got national priority, uh, the the, uh, the national unity. Number two is technology, and they've really been effective using those uh, the Star Streak from the British, the Javelin from us, the shoulder fired missiles because this is an, a mechanized invasion force. It's tanks, it's armored personnel carriers, it's troop carriers, t helicopters. Those are excellent targets for the the shoulder launched uh, weapon systems that they have in, in abundance now. They, have a, they can be carried by one soldier, they can be fired by one soldier, and they pack enough of a punch to take out a tank or an APC or a helicopter. So I think we've seen quite a bit of that. So technology's played another role. And, and that leads right into the third part, which is foreign assistance, because that's where it's coming from. I mean, Western aid. They're getting all those things from, from, it's coming through Poland, but they're coming from the United States and Britain and, and even Germany now, which is astonishing, by the way. That breaks a 70-year tradition from the Germans of not supplying weapons to anybody outside their country. So I think those three things together are sort of explain why they've been able to repeat a superior force. Because let's face it, that's what Russia had. They were the superior force. They had more firepower. They had the numbers. They certainly had an advantage in terms of just raw, raw military power. Uh, but so Ukrainians have been, have been fighting asymmetrically, if you will, to offset that. And I know if folks may be listening, if they don't know what asymmetric warfare is, it's actually pretty simple. You know, if you have an invasion force like Russia's that come in and you send out a force that's about the same size with similar equipment, that's a symmetrical force because they look like each other. They're about the same numbers. They have the same time of equipment. That's a conventional fight. Asymmetric warfare 
you have an invasion force coming in, but you have a much smaller groups running around doing hit and run style attacks. And so they, the, the two forces don't mirror each other. And that's, that's the asymmetric part. So now I think that's what they've been doing. Uh, and I think that's why they've been effective targeting fuel trucks to slow down convoys, using drones to find targets, uh, using hacking skills to disrupt the Russian communications. Cause as you said on, I think it was on two shows ago from a military force, you know, if you, uh, if you roll in and you can't communicate, you're just a heavily armed camping expedition. You're, you're not an invasion force anymore if you can't communicate. So I put all that together anyway, that that's my assessment of what they've been doing so far. Yeah, and you know now they, they they have a little more advantage as they move to the east because there they have closer lines of communication, closer supply. They're fighting from areas that are fairly well secured. You know they they've been in those areas for for many years, and so that's where I'm interested to see if if the Ukrainian forces can keep the pressure up. And, and, and it would be it would be very useful to have a perspective from inside Russia when speaking of pressure to see how how things are going, how that's being perceived, you know, within Russia. And I, I certainly understand for folks who live there or maybe going back there why they wouldn't want to, you know, go public and, and talk about it. I, I get that. I, I probably would do the same thing if I was in their shoes. So I, I get that. But it makes it a little more difficult for everyone else to figure out what the view looks like from inside Russia because it's really hard. It's really hard to say. What that is. I mean, I've I've seen Russian journalists giving interviews in English who claim that there's a fairly sizable support for uh, the war in Ukraine, and there's also a fairly vocal minority. But as as the facts come out, and as their own government is now acknowledging much higher casualties, I would think you'll start to see a shift in that uh, those numbers on who's supporting and who's who's in opposition, or maybe just undecided. Yeah, and you know, we we uh, in the United States, we've seen. Over the years, when when a war is initially declared, you have a rally around the flag effect. But as wars drag on, even the most supported wars, you know, you look at 9-11. When we went into Afghanistan, I think that there there was near universal um, support for that conflict. As as the war dragged on and, and the aims and objectives of the United States seemed to be wandering, then I think that you you obviously saw a lot of, of diminishing support. So Russia will inevitably experience the same thing as, as this war drags out. Another thing they'll experience, though, every day that these sanctions are in place, they will reduce Russia's military-industrial capabilities. You know, the, the sanctions are definitely the most severe sanctions that we've ever seen. And to what extent they'll play havoc on the Russian economy. I just don't think we know yet, but but we can expect that they will play some some havoc on their overall economy. And I, and I know in terms of popular sport you mentioned in Ukraine, one of the reasons why that's so important, not just for manpower, but it also frees up the Ukrainian military to focus on carrying out attacks against Russian forces or planning. And they have less civil obligations because the population is so engaged uh, in the cities, for example, there have been towns where where the cities taken it upon themselves to blow up bridges or railways so that Russian forces could not cross the river. That's one of the reasons I think why the Russian forces were not able to get much farther into the hinterland of Ukraine because those key junctions where there were bridges or railroads that they needed to access to get in there were blown up before they got there. 
And so, and that wasn't done by the Ukrainian military. That was done by locals who just said, "We got to, we got to find a way to take this down so the Russians can't use it." And so that that shows a pretty high degree of, of willingness to tolerate pain when you're willing to blow up your own infrastructure in order to prevent it from being uh, leveraged by your enemy. Yes, and and I think it it also it it speaks to a clear misunderstanding on the Russians' part. The Russians felt that they were going to come in here and that they would be greeted as liberators and uh, that they were not and you know that that's another aspect of the history that i'm i'm interested in in learning more about why the russians felt that you know some have speculated that it's possible putin had, and the fsb and the various forces gru had paid off many people with the expectation that these payments would deliver the kinds of results that they thought. And so maybe these folks took their money but could not deliver on what they promised. Maybe these folks even fled. Um, now Russia's stuck with the uh, faulty invasion. And I think that's why we see the, uh, the atrocities. You know, when you're, in, when you're a soldier and you're in the middle of an area where you're, you're universally loathed by the, by the local population, and you're you're getting hit from all sides. You're seeing civilians take part in in um, resistance activities. It's probably pretty easy to understand why those soldiers are lashing out the way they are. Um, you know, it doesn't justify, but it does go some way to explain things. Yeah, you know, and I I can use the examples that I've I've seen in Iraq when you're in an urban heavy urban area and there's lots of fighting going on. It's almost inevitable that civilians are going to get caught in the crossfire and, and that they will take casualties that no one was, was trying to cause. So I, I'm willing to grant that it can also be the case in Ukraine that there's a certain percentage where there was a crossfire, there was a battle between two forces, and no one was really trying to kill them, uh, and, and they ended up getting caught in the crossfire. But that doesn't explain the number of civilian casualties that are being, that are being reported uh, on the ground in places just north of Kiev and in other locations, that's not indicative of, that's not what you see in a crossfire situation. That is targeted. Uh, and so that appears to be deliberate. And uh, I look forward to uh, international agencies who have the capacity to investigate those and gather physical evidence uh, in addition to just the audiovisual and, and testimony to try to put together a, a bigger picture of what actually happened there. Uh, in those places because it's it certainly looks like you know like you said russian forces pull out there's all kinds of civilian deaths behind it looks it sure looks like that that was the doing of um, of russia's military and it was intentional it's also possible that they have other groups working with them not just regular russian militaries but folks like the wagner group and other mercenaries that they use who have little or no compunction at all about uh, killing civilians. I, I read there was a couple, this is back in uh, 2014, but there was a couple of American missionaries who went into the eastern portions there in Donbass to do humanitarian work, and they got caught at a checkpoint. And someone had put a gun to their head, and, and the individual said, look, I'm paid to kill. It doesn't matter who. Uh, my job is just to kill people that come through here. So they ended up, ended up they let them go because they had the right stamp on their passport or whatever. Um, but you can just see how there's there's non-military forces that are out there with weapons also engaging in atrocities too. So we should keep that in mind. Uh, it looks like it may have been the Russian military, but it might not have been entirely the Russian military. It could have been some of the mercenary groups that they use, uh, and they, like, they they hire them specifically for that reason to terrorize people. That's that's what they do. I mean, that's their whole job. As horrible as that is, that's that's who those that's who those guys are. 
We've seen that in, in Donbass and other places. You know, another thing that has fascinated me about this conflict is this. We, we were looking at the Russian military prior to February 24th as, uh, you know, I've seen multiple um, references to Russia being the second greatest military in, in the world. I actually saw a meme yesterday. The Ukrainians said, well, if Russia is the second best military in the world, that must mean that we're the first. Uh, and, you know, I think this has taken a lot of the veneer off the uh, the Russian mystique. You know, we, we looked at Russia and, and whether we whether we were fans of Russia or um, felt that, that we were likely opponents of Russia, we all look to Russia as being a mighty country. I, I think that it has taken an incredible beating now in terms of public perception. I, I don't, you know, I see multiple reports about um, uh, Dugan, Alexander Dugan, I think, the, uh, the Putin's... Um, um, Philosopher? Um, uh, what's that? His Rasputin. Yeah. Uh, Putin's Rasputin is is um, is Dugan supposedly, and I've seen stories about um, how Putin's um, Rasputin wants him to go all the way to to Portugal and to um, to Lisbon, and you know he he's not getting out of Ukraine. Russia's not getting out of Ukraine. They'll be lucky if they can get. Eastern Ukraine consolidated. So I think that the uh, the idea that the Russians are all powerful has really suffered over these last few weeks. And, and in its own way, it reaffirms. Speaking of the history of it, um, I read um, the former ambassador to Ukraine's book uh, Yavanovich, and uh, it's a really good good book. I think um, she was posted many other places. There was only a few chapters on Ukraine. Most of it's on other things, but. The, the parts that are on Ukraine reaffirm some things that are of relevance to this situation. And first of those being in the USSR, Ukraine sort of had a special place amongst the republics. Because it was, you know, USSR is the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So there's a number of different satellite nations all around that are part of the whole. Um, and so the largest of those was Ukraine and the most populous. It was second only to Russia, second only to ethnic Russians. So what that means is Ukraine sort of had a special place amongst the, the former USSR republics. And what that meant was, um, the old saying was that Russia without Ukraine is a nation, Russia with Ukraine is an empire. And so the Russians have, they certainly have spent a lot of money and they've, they've made a lot of loans and investments in Ukraine. So initially, if you go back to 2007 and earlier, some of Putin's comments actually weren't unreasonable when he said, look, we've made all these investments. And he, he was not unreasonable to say we kind of have a right to expect something in return for all that. I think any country would have said that, would have agreed with that. If we had given that kind of money to someone, we would expect something in return. So, so that's sort of reasonable. But then you go off on this, this tangent of, of uh, well, Ukraine's not even a real country. It's the same as Russia. It doesn't have independence. Um, so that's a big leap. And it just made me wonder if he's ever actually even been there. I wonder if he's ever actually been to Ukraine, because I don't think he has. I can't find any reference in any of his biographies or any of the folks that write about him or have been with him. I can't find anything that says he's actually set foot in Ukraine. So you have to wonder what he really knows about the about the, the lay of the land there, and, and the same for his the people that are around him. Have they ever been to Ukraine? I don't think they have. That'll be some good homework. I, I don't know the answer to that question. 
Um, I, I know one thing I was reminded of as you were talking about um, Putin early, you know, some of the comments that he made earlier in his career uh, as as the leader of the uh, of, of Russia. Um, I think back to the comments that that came out yesterday by President Obama. There was a story I saw it in the Hill, and uh, President Obama said that he was really stunned that Putin made such an audacious move and that he could not have predicted that that Putin would have acted so irrationally based on his experience. He said he made the comment that this seemed like a different person than the one that he, President Obama, worked with during President Obama's tenure in the White House. So, you, you know, you wonder... To what extent is is Putin acting on long seated grievances, and, and to what extent he's acting on more more recent? You know, there've been stories that that he may not be physically well. There've been stories that he may not be mentally well, and obviously, there's a lot of speculation. We don't know, but you know, th- this reinforces that kind of speculation. Well, if you remember back in the um, the early 2000s when he was first uh, kind of an unknown, and when he first made his appearance. You know, this was a guy who was out swimming rivers, bare-chested, and wrestling bears, and 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 doing all of those things because he he had a, a, an image that he wanted to cultivate, which is smart. If you if you're in politics, you want to cultivate that uh, positive image, um, and and that worked very well for him uh, at first to help him get uh, to rise through the ranks of uh, the Russian power. So the guy who used to swim rivers and wrestle bears and do judo now has people tasting his food and sitting 20 feet away from him at, at meeting tables. So I, I think clearly there's been a change in behavior. I don't know why. Uh, it would be pure speculation to try to uh, address why that is. Based on the almost extreme amounts of security he has around him on a personal basis, my personal speculation is that he survived an assassination attempt already that we don't know about. Uh, and and it, it failed, and he redoubled his security and tripled his security as a result of that. Again, I have absolutely nothing to back that up. That's pure speculation. But but when you institute the kind of security changes that he has on a personal level, usually it's because it's in response to something specific that happened. Most people don't just throw that kind of security around themselves for no reason. Well, and, and you know, the entire invasion of Ukraine, which seemed to have been done hurriedly without a lot of other input, it seems like he, he was afraid of something. He, he felt like, you know, I mean, those of us in the West looked at Putin's situation and thought, you know, he's actually got things pretty good. Russia actually has things pretty pretty good. You know, they've got this new pipeline, Nord Stream 2, going online. They, uh, they got the Germans in their hip pocket. You know, why would they make such a rash decision? And, you know, that kind of leads back to what you said earlier, that something has happened to scare the wits off out of Putin. Well, and, and some of it is, and this is uh, something that I got into when I, when I spoke with my coll- former colleague and classmate, Max Kovalov, who's from, from Ukraine. He teaches international relations down in uh, South Carolina now. Um, when you see democracy taking root on your doorstep, uh, and, you, and you see that the, pop- the crowds can thumb their nose at your authority, because that's who Yanukovych was. He was, he was basically... He was elected by Ukrainians, but he answered to Moscow. That's an old system that they've had in the, in the satellite nations that they kept it after the Soviet Union collapsed. And so if you can get rid of the, your guy, then who's next? You know, if, if democracy can take root in Ukraine, maybe it can take root in Russia. 
And and for Putin and, and, and his circle, that is unacceptable. They they don't believe in the efficacy of democracy at all. I think you have to realize that this is a person who completely rejects the idea, not just the practice of democracy, but the concept is completely rejected and completely seen as antithetical to Russian security and, and Russia's future. So when it shows up on your doorstep with that mindset, uh, it's a threat. And so you have to find a way to deal with that threat. And I think that's what we've been seeing play out uh, since 2013 when the maiden protests first broke out and started all this because when we've done earlier shows on that you know you can you can trace the history back through the, the maiden protest that's what triggered it um, you didn't hear any talk about uh, Nazis in Ukraine before that uh, it wasn't until the crowds took to the streets demanding Yadukovych uh, change his policies and accept the European Union's uh, trade deal all of a sudden then out of nowhere <laughs> there were there were Nazis and fascists in Ukraine um, so yeah. the timing of that's pretty hard to pretty hard to swallow. I don't believe yeah. in coincidences yeah. that much. So he obviously has viewed that in a in a um, in a much more sinister light than you know we we did. I mean, uh, you know, I I didn't think that there was much chance for any kind of civil unrest in um, in Russia. But at the same time, it, it only takes one. You know, he, he has to be right every time. The uh, the opposition only has to be right once in order to get rid of him. So yeah, no, I was going to say um, with respect to the um, the situation there in, in Kiev. I mean, this is a, a, a important point from 2013. I've heard a lot of folks, even even respected scholars like John Mersheimer, who in the international relations field is a legend, uh, write a lot of articles recently and published uh, statements that it, it, this none of this would have happened if NATO hadn't have encroached on on Russia's doorstep. And I just want to make the point that that's absolutely false. It wasn't something NATO did that triggered this. It was something the Ukrainians did that triggered this. This, these, the, the invasion of both Donbas, Crimea, and now the full country was because of the behavior of Ukraine, not NATO. And I, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone actually make that point explicitly when, when confronted with that claim. That's what we got. We got visitors here on the on the Zoom. For folks that are listening can't see. There's a couple of visitors nearby on the camera there. That's okay. Always have visitors at my house. Yeah, um, that's okay. About Mersheimer, I, I, I didn't know this, but maybe I sent this to you, but someone shared a foreign affairs article by him back in the early 90s. And do you know he actually advocated for Ukraine to keep nuclear weapons when when that, when that Ukraine was, was deliberating whether they were going to release? Of course, they had nuclear weapons because they were part of the USSR. And there were nuclear weapons stored on their soil. And Mearsheimer actually made the recommendation, hey, look, they need to keep their nukes in order to be a deterrent to Russia. And, and But that also illustrates, I mean, you know, the Soviets didn't give those things to everybody. So that, again, underscores my point about Ukraine having a special status. They were allowed to store nuclear weapons on their soil, which is a pretty big deal for the Soviet Union to let you do that. Um, that again underscores that sort of special relationship that Ukraine have because I can't think of any other of the republics that were allowed to do that. Um, that was sort of a unique situation. And so what I'm getting at when I say that is this: Why did they? Why did Russia invade? Or why did Putin order this invasion? I mean, to me, at the heart of it is betrayal. You know, Ukraine has this special place in the Soviet uh, scheme of things. Putin still has that mindset, and and all of these efforts have been directed towards Ukraine and money. And they used to have nuclear weapons. And we share a common history and culture. And now you want to embrace democracy. And now you want to travel in the European Union. That's betrayal. 
it's just from Putin's point of view, you, the Ukrainians have betrayed us or they've betrayed our trust. And so for me, that when I look for motive, I look for basic things, and, and that's what I find. I, I find betrayal at the heart of it, at least from, from their perspective. And, you know, by logical extension, if you feel betrayed, you're more likely to, if you feel like your, your primary aim, taking of Kiev and taking of the entire country, has been thwarted, then you may, um, you, you may resort to lashing out and attempting to destroy as much of the country as you possibly can, which seems to be what's happening today. Well, and, and that the other question I have about that is when it comes to the actual operations of the Russian military, who's making those decisions? Uh, who, who's making the decisions? Because you know, the way we do things, we have combatant commanders that carry out the actual, you know, the president gives us a directive, and it's essentially, to use a sports metaphor, it's essentially like, okay, here's the football. Go do whatever you think you need to do to score a touchdown. So it's decentralized. Like we don't have a micromanager up there telling us how to do it. They just tell us what we want to be done. So they set the goal. We figure out how to do it. I don't know if that's the case with Russia. I don't know who's making the decisions about which target gets hit or, or which target doesn't get hit. I can't find a pattern when I look at their operations so far. I haven't been able to figure out how, they're, how those decisions get made and what the pattern is. The pattern, when you put it on a map, you know, what we expect to find when we're, when we're targeting things like, like uh, enemy assets, you find a cluster of really close uh, explosions or, or hip aim points all around the target, which shows you what you're aiming at. I can't find any of that in the satellite imagery of Russia's uh, attacks. It's random. So either they don't know what they're shooting at, or, and they're just firing blind hoping to hit it, or it's intentional and they're just trying to scare the daylights out of the Ukrainians into surrender. I can't say for sure, and I made this point on the Jack Patty show, I can't say for sure which one of those two is correct just based on the pictures. But it looks like the second one. It sure looks like they're just trying to scare them and terrorize the Ukrainians into, into submission so that they'll surrender. Because I can't see any, any rhyme or reason to their targeting pattern. They don't have one. It's just, it looks random. Yeah. Either, either it's deliberate or it's, it's so reckless and they know that it's happening that it's um you know whether it's whether it's intentional or not it's it's um if i shoot into a crowded theater just because i can say to uh, to a jury I, I didn't intend to to kill billy who was at the back of the theater i, I don't know how much weight that's going to cut with a jury so, no and somebody and some, speaking of go ahead we, i'm just going to say we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of people i saw where the, the president of germany today said that Putin and Lavrov um, should sit for war crimes prosecutions. That, that to me is stunning that the president of Germany is is saying that kind of thing about the Russians. And the Germans have also said, and I'm just quoting them here, they said, look, they, they said this is their quote, they said, look, sadly, we're the experts on Nazis, okay, and there aren't, there's no Nazi threat in Ukraine, so we, we just want to put that to rest right now. People repeating that should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, I actually had someone, when I was on the Jack Patty Show, call in and, and recite the, the Russian propaganda line right down the line, man. The whole thing, like, they're denazifying Ukraine, they're taking out the fascists, it's totally justified. I mean, I mean, just, so here in the United States, you got people buying into that nonsense because they've heard it non nonstop on, uh, on TV. And you're absolutely right, the war crimes talk has started up, and unfortunately, you know, the reality of the world we live in is there's a very good chance that nothing will ever happen. To, to Vladimir Putin. Nothing will ever happen to Lavrov. There's a very good chance that they'll just get away with it. You know, the um, speaking of the, those kinds of, of views and how prominent those views are, 
I noticed that Jeff Young is running for Congress in uh, the 6th Congressional District of Kentucky, which is currently represented by Congressman Andy Barr. Um, and uh, he, he's taking those kinds of positions. Yeah, he was look, the, you know, the, yeah, he was the guy who called. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, he's, he's very prominent on advocating those views and, and you know, probably be a little bit of an issue in the Democratic primary. Yeah, and But the point, I, I didn't get a chance to make this on the radio because we had such time limitations, but, uh, you know, we, we forget that, that propaganda is not, especially government propaganda, it's not designed to fool people who are uneducated or, or uninformed. It's specifically designed to fool people who are educated and who are informed because those are the people you need on your side repeating your, your line to everybody else. You want the educated class. You want the people that are informed. So, you know, don't be surprised when, when propaganda works on people that are that are intelligent and, and they've, they've studied and they've read, but they still recite the propaganda pieces. That's what it's designed to do it works and it's very effective well and, and propaganda is one of those things that you know it's, it's designed in such a way that it, it will ultimately explain everything if you just give it enough time and give it enough chance and you have enough ingrained bias you can you can believe everything you can believe the moon landings were fake you can believe that the lbj killed jfk etc 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 and and uh you know, how do you counter that? It's that's that's the hard part with countering propaganda is you you have to go back and explain every single um, every single fact along the process that leads you to conclude what you conclude. Yeah, well, you know, Orwell had that comment in 1984. What do you do with the lunatic who persists in his lunacy even after being given irrefutable proof that they're wrong? I mean, nonetheless, they look you right in the eye and just continue on with their with their lunacy. What do you what do you do with them? And so it's probably something that we'll never actually figure out completely. No, you, and you, you'll you'll never change the, the minds of some people. You just no matter how much evidence you produce. Yeah, and but that you know. I think skepticism is healthy. That's a good thing. We we should question official narratives. I'm not. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm in favor of that. But there's a big difference between skepticism, and then you move down the path to cynicism, and then you keep going, and you're at nihilism, which is where you know everything is is false. So anything could be true, right? And you know, you know that's the old Hannah Arendt. That's one of my favorite quotes from her book Origins of Totalitarianism. And I'll just I'll throw it off the top of my head, but she wrote something like, um, you know, in an ever changing and incomprehensible world. The masses had reached the point where they would believe everything and nothing. They would think that everything is possible, but nothing was true. And so under those conditions, the propagandists base their, uh, their material on the correct assumption that if you give people, if you tell people something one day and then the next give them irrefutable proof of the falsehood, instead of deserting the leaders who lied to them, they would admire them for their superior tactical cleverness. Because they didn't mind being lied to because the public held every statement to be a lie anyhow. So it's, it's a really fascinating part of the book, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that play out today, uh, where we've gone from healthy skepticism to cynicism now to just outright nihilism, where everything is possible and nothing is true. And so that, that's what gives rise to the conspiracy theories. That's what, that's what allows extremism to flourish. Um, and that's how you get the, the opposite worldview where, oh, well, no, there really are Nazis in Ukraine. I, I, I know there are, even though you haven't been there, uh, even though there aren't any. Um, but you can still make that claim in public with a straight face. <laughs> and biolabs. Yeah. Oh, well, and, and I acknowledge, by the way, I acknowledge, by the way, there are there is a far right movement in Ukraine. Lots of countries have. We have a far right movement. 
your past far right movements, you know, and the, I acknowledge the Azov Battalion have some bad guys in there, and yes, I am worried about them getting weapons. So I don't, I don't discount that at all. I'm not trying to dismiss that. Uh, I'm simply saying they don't have popular support in Ukraine. They don't run the government. They're certainly not in any position to get those things. So you know, when your when your house is on fire, you got to put out that fire first. Um, you can worry about uh, what's wrong with your drapes or carpet later. You know. You know those labs, as I understand those alleged labs, as I understand it, are, are somewhat similar to what we have here in Kentucky Bluegrass Army Depot, where we're just you know you have munitions that were previously legal that has since been banned by Geneva Convention, but you can't just go out and throw those in the local garbage container. You have to um, you have to go through an incineration process. They sound like they sound like they're having fun back there. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, heaven only knows what the home will look like when we get done, but uh, they look like a war here at the house. But you can't just throw those things away. And so that's, you know, just like we're doing at Bluegrass Army Depot, it's taking many, many years to get the proper procedures in place, the proper infrastructure. And then you have to put them through a process. You can't burn them all overnight. I think that that's my understanding of what we have in Ukraine. It's not as if we have ongoing. Um, research into bat viruses. Yeah, and this is a very old story. Uh, the Soviet Union planted a lot of fake stories about uh, bioweapons before. And back in the 80s, they accused the U.S. government of inventing the AIDS virus, for example. They accused the CIA of unleashing mutant mosquitoes on Pakistan. That's another example. Um, both of those which were, were, were told as true stories by, by uh, the Soviets uh, back during the Cold War. So I, th I think this is just a continuation of that, that sort of legacy. Like, we'll just, we'll just continue that same rumor because instantly weapons of mass destruction gets attention, right? That immediately gets people's attention when you start talking right. about that. So it's really an attention step uh, to get people's attention. And, and high schools have bio, biological labs, so what? It doesn't mean they're making weapons. Um, there's a, there are very specific types of equipment and protocols that have to be followed in order to weaponize pathogens at volume and scale to order to use them as a weapon. It, you can't do it with just a, a regular lab. It just it won't work. It's not even possible. So it, it's, a, it's a fictitious story, and I don't, I'm not sure why it's gained so much traction uh, here in the United States. Um, oh, hello. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Okay. Well, we're on Zoom for folks that are just listening. Sorry, I, I lost the picture for a second, but I wasn't sure. Um, okay, yeah, so th that's an old story for me. I mean, the, the, the Russians have been making up stuff like that for a long time. I just see that as a continuation of that, that same policy um, because it's an attention getter. So it gets a lot of publicity. I think that's why they're doing it. And, and here's another thing. We've, the Ukrainian forces have actually captured quite a, bit of, quite a few Russian uh, troops and, and personnel carriers. I haven't seen a single instance, or at least if they have, they haven't reported it. I haven't seen a single captured piece of Russian equipment or soldier that had mop gear or, or protective gear. Like If you were going to use chemical and biological weapons, I would think you would give your own forces protective gear uh, so that when that day came, they would put on their mask and not die. And I haven't seen any instance of that equipment being picked up by, by the Ukrainians with Russian forces. So I don't, that, that tells me that this is just talk. Uh, had you captured a regiment that had a mop gear, now you got something to, to stand on. Now you'd have some proof, but I have not seen that. Yeah, and you know, I also haven't seen those stories in a couple of weeks. That was that was something that that was the chatter, you know, m maybe mid March or so. And since that time, it's it's kind of faded away. I haven't seen anything 
uh, about that. I don't know. Maybe that's because the, the Russians have, retreat, have retreated into those areas for the most part where they already occupied it. But you're, uh, my guess you're, is they're uh, seeing. My guess is they're pretty busy trying to figure out how to revise their narrative now that the truth on the ground is becoming so glaringly different from what they're telling that people are going to start to figure it out uh, rapidly. And in, in, in talking about in Russia, so they're they're trying to game that. And I don't. I think they probably will. I mean, they've been pretty effective so far within Russia, at least, of dominating the narrative and controlling the perception. So I, I would expect that to continue. Yeah, they they definitely seem to have a monopoly on the media in that country now whether that's the case or not I, you know i've seen reports that if you're if you're an educated person and you want to get other media you can get other media through the use of epn and other technologies yeah. um I have friend, some of the Facebook friends I have in Russia, besides the ones that just you and me know, there's some other ones. I was actually astonished when I, I looked up one of their feeds and, and, I, and it had, you know, you can, posi- you can tag your position. And I did a double take. I was like, what, Turkey? Wow. That, that person has, hasn't, I've known them for you know, six, seven years and they've always lived in, in Russia and now they're in Turkey. Uh, so some of those folks have decided to, I think Armenia and Turkey are the top two destinations for Russian expats, especially those that are tech savvy. And have the means they've gotten out of there before there's a, a general mobilization or a further crackdown, um, which just which sort of tells you another indication about that there's there's some more dissent that, than we know about within Russia itself, or at least people who don't believe the official uh, party line. But Politico did a story, rather large, long story on uh, the expats and how most of them are younger and how they're they're getting out of Dodge. It was a good story when it was on yesterday. Yeah, so I mean, as we as we go forward, you know, we're we're getting. I know you got to you got to go, and I I do too here in a little bit. But um, as we look forward, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of what we can look for in the next the next phase of this. If Russian forces are in fact doing what they say they're doing and shifting a focus to the east, um, that could allow a little bit of breathing room for the capital. Although, if I was one of those guys there, if I was an expat that was in Kiev right now, I'd be on maximum alert. Uh, because that's you know when they tell you they're leaving is exactly the time I would expect a, a, a bigger attack to come. So I, I would not be buying that if I was in that place. But if they're actually doing that, then that would seem to signal that this has entered a new phase uh, of the conflict. You know, I actually saw a story earlier on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to attempt his name, but Ilya is uh, his, his first name, and he's a reporter with the Kiev Independent. And he was actually tweeting that the, the traffic lines are enormous for people coming back to the capital today. And uh, so I guess they, they are some some people are moving back in droves. Um, but I think that the east is where the action is going to be over the next two to four weeks. And it will be interesting to see does Russian does Russia get some renewed momentum having gone back to the east and, and focused on the eastern areas, or does Ukraine keep up the momentum that it has had? Can it do that without offensive weapons? I, I would tend to think that it, that's very difficult, but at the same time, they've shown remarkable panache and, and remarkable courage. So if there's anybody that can do it, it's, it's the Ukrainian military. But that's, I think, what to watch over the next few weeks. I also think Mariupol bears watching over the next few days you know for Russia there's, there's some reports that Russia is very close to uh, capturing all of the city 
then there are other people who are saying, hell no, we're, they're nowhere near capturing all the city. If, if Russia cannot capture all of Mariupol in the next two to four weeks, then I think that that could be a, a pretty large defeat in the eyes of the public. Um, you know, these sanctions, bear watching. So I think those are some of the things that we need to keep our eye on over the two to four weeks. Yeah, it, it, it is. That's I would agree with almost all of that. And I don't I don't really have too much to add, because I think as this plays out, if, if we see a shift in focus uh, towards the eastern regions, then we'll see Ukraine also reposition some of their forces to um, get involved in that engagement in a, at a heavier degree, because I don't get the sense that Ukrainians are interested in ceding any more territory uh, to the Russians. It certainly doesn't sound like it. So even though I understand that those places in the east are much closer to Russia and closer to Russian supply chains and they don't have, they're not as vulnerable when they stretch out and they have a, a better chance of conquering or taking those areas, I don't see Ukraine letting it go without, without a, a pretty bl- bloody uh, fight either way. So I, I would look for the fighting to intensify uh, in those places in the coming weeks. And, and, and you would probably see a much more uh, intense uh, barrages and probably more humanitarian disasters than we've even seen so far. Yeah, and you know Ukraine's point on on all of that is why why should we cede that ground? Why should we um, enter into some kind of ceasefire, some kind of peace agreement when when Putin and the Russians have shown themselves to be absolutely uh, without trust? You know, you can't rely on someone like that, and and it's a pretty it's a pretty good argument. Why would you at this point believe anything that the Russians tell you? No, that's true, and, and Ukraine's done a great job of, of uh, leveraging public opinion to their support. The the address from Ukrainian President Zelensky to Congress was was sort of remarkable. That was a historic moment. Uh, and, and, you know, you go, go back in time far enough, you know, the Apostle Paul said, always speak to people in a language they can understand. And so when I heard Zelensky's address, it seemed that he did precisely that. Whether people think he was being earnest or just trying to manipulate the West, it may be a little both. But he certainly spoke to the uh, the congressional audience there and, and, and Americans in a language we can understand because he talked about democracy and freedom and defending self-governance. All the things that you would want to say if you were trying to motivate uh, an ally or potential ally like the United States and, and the Europeans to come to their side. So I think that was an effective presentation. And uh, Pew said, seven, I think 72% of Americans responded favorably to Zelensky's address. That's higher than we've had from an American president in the last 20 years. So whether Republican or Democrat, none of the U.S. presidents have gotten that, that good of a response uh, from, a, from a speech to Congress. So that's pretty remarkable. And, you know, he's done it everywhere. He's done it in Knesset. He's done it in yep. the uh, Diet. He's done it, you know, in Parliament. Absolutely. Um, he's taken that show on the road in a, in a way that... that I don't ever remember anyone doing anything like this. I guess you have to go all the way back to World War II to see anything similar. Yeah, no, that's and that's that opinion drives the continued support of American and European uh, military forces and and supplies. So that that's critical to their to their whole war effort. So I, I would expect to see those supplies increase. And maybe even to the point where Ukraine can go on the offensive in some places, especially they're already doing that, it looks like, in Kiev to the north uh, and pushing, pushing some of the Russian forces back. So I, I think it's, it'll, it'll be a continued uh, intense situation in the next few weeks, and there'll be a lot of things happen that will decide which way the, uh, the ultimate outcome is going to go. Yeah, and I say one thing we didn't mention that, that also bears watching is the German response to all these atrocities that keep piling up. They have heretofore been very reluctant to cut 
gas supplies, but the political pressure is increasing. So with, if they'll be whether they'll be able to continue to hold it. I mean, I, I don't know how you say the president of a country is guilty of war crimes and deserves to be prosecuted at, in the Hague, and simultaneously we're going to send that same country and that same president millions and millions of, of um, Deutschmarks every day. Probably billions. Europe, <laughs> uh, billions of euros every day to um, to fund their war effort. I, I agree. That's... And, you know, I think for me, the real question with the Europeans, when it comes, especially Germany, when it comes to cutting ties with Russian gas, my question isn't, isn't do they want to, can they? Uh, I know they want to. I don't know if they can. Uh, and so I think that's yeah. the question they're wrestling with. Can they and continue to have their economy? That, that's a great point. No, well, those we're right at the hour mark here almost. So that would that'd be a great topic for us to take up uh, next time. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to join us here. And it's always a good conversation to try to make some sense out of things we see in here. And as that situation continues to develop, we have a, a need to know uh, what's going on because uh, we're involved indirectly. And so that, that's going to be – I would expect this to come up later, too, in the election year as, as a hot topic. It hasn't so far, uh, but I think it will. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, so thanks for having me on, Jason. Likewise, I appreciate you uh, doing this. So. Thanks for being on the show again. Really appreciate your time, and I appreciate the the, uh, the time for everyone who's uh, taking the uh, the time out of their day to listen. I think it's important for us to have discussions like this about topics like Ukraine that are obviously of uh, enormous significance not only to the world uh, but to our, our country as well. You know, we we do these conversations to try to make sense out of what's happening, not to pretend that we know everything or that we have a uh, an infallible viewpoint. Uh, it's simply to try to keep ourselves informed and to help each other understand what's going on so that we can uh, we can be informed citizens and help our government make good choices uh, in the future. So thanks for listening and hope everyone has a great day.